0: Hey Rachel, remind me, how did Xavier lose the use of his legs again?
1: Well, which time, Miles?
0: There was more than one.
1: You're joking, right? Dude's in and out of a wheelchair just about every other week.
0: Okay, first time. Korean War, right?
1: What? No, 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 the first time was Lucifer.
0: No, I'm pretty sure it was a childhood accident. I mean, I remember him saying that sometime in the early Silver Age.
1: Oh, he did, but it's been retconned so often that no one's even certain anymore. Except in the Ultimate Universe, and then it was definitely Magneto with a spear.
0: God, this is worse than Clue. What about the Shadow King? What about him? Well, didn't he paralyze Xavier?
1: Oh yeah, he totally did, but that was one of the later times.
0: And that was when they fought on the astral plane in Cairo, right? The same day Xavier first met Storm, only she wasn't no, Storm No, 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 no.
1: See, that was when Xavier killed the Shadow King, or at least his human vessel. The Shadow King paralyzed Xavier during the Muir Island Saga when he would possessed Legion. The Shadow King, I mean, had possessed Legion, not Xavier.
0: What's his deal, anyway?
1: Legion? We covered that back with Psy. No, the Shadow King. Well, he's a disembodied telepath.
0: Kind of like Proteus.
1: Well, kind of, but the Shadow King can actually survive without a host body.
0: So he's a mutant?
1: originally he was but then he was retconned oh god to be a multiversal astral manifestation of the dark side of human consciousness spawned from the first nightmare what i'm rachel editon and
0: i'm miles stokes
1: and we are here to explain the X-Men.
0: Because it's about time someone did.
1: Welcome to the 46th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera.
0: So after our detour to East Africa last episode, we're back with the New Mutants.
1: And a whole, whole lot of unnecessary Secret Wars 2 crossovers. Uh, We're going to meet an old friend and say a reluctant goodbye to artist Bill Sienkiewicz from the title.
0: Yeah, I always forget, like, with uh, artists like Bill Sienkiewicz, and especially artists like, say, Paul Smith, like, they're so iconic, but they just don't really stick around for very long
1: with Sienkiewicz in particular though I think he really defined not only sort of the iconic versions of the characters but also subsequent artists approach to the art
0: yeah and we'll definitely see that in this episode with the artist that immediately follows him up Steve Lea Loa
1: Yeah, Leoloa is very, very much working in, in the tradition Sienkiewicz started, and I think that's one of the reasons that those guys get set as iconic, because it's not just that they're definitive or that they do a particularly good run, it's that everyone afterwards sort of takes a cue from them.
0: But I think we're getting ahead of ourselves, so let's check in about where we were, where we last left the New Mutants.
1: Well, let's see. Half the team was on Muir Island dealing with the Legion stuff.
0: Right, and that was Daniel Moonstar, Mirage, Rain Sinclair, Wolfsbane, Doug Ramsey, Cypher, and Warlock.
1: The other half is still in the U.S., and that's Sam Guthrie, Cannonball, Ileana Rasputin, Magic, Roberto DaCosta, Sunspot, and Amara Aquila, Magma. So you notice that's eight New Mutants so far. That's most of the definitive team.
0: The series is sort of known for having a very large core cast, and I think part of how it gets away with that is that for a lot of its run, it's just bits and pieces of them. Like, we were just talking about half of them being Mirror Island, the uh, Demon Bear Saga was not nearly that many characters. This, I think, is the first arc where we're really going to see them all together outside of uh, New Mutants' annual number one
1: you say they split them up a lot to make the cast more manageable but the thing is every time they do that they pull in like supporting characters or x-men so you know we're gonna have an, an arc that's only half of the cast but they're gonna have you know dazzler and kitty pride and rachel summers with them
0: it's true yeah that's a good point but claremont he's writing everything at this point And he's really good at uh, managing a cast of that size. Like, usually you don't really find any characters who just sort of fade into the background.
1: Now, the two relevant plot hooks that we're going to sort of be working from here are actually three. The first is that you may remember that Karma disappeared long, long, long ago in the first New Mutants arc, first or second.
0: Uh, The first, that was at the end of New Mutants number six. Uh, There was a big explosion. By the beginning of New Mutants number seven, she was gone, presumed dead.
1: Much later, Professor X was beaten to death and later revived by the Morlocks. By the sewer
0: wizard of the Morlocks.
1: Right, and he's having trouble with his telepathy because of that and because of the advent of the Beyonder on Earth in Secret Wars 2. Secret Wars 2 is basically in here fucking everything up right now.
0: It kind of is. I mean, it is for the entire Marvel Universe. Like, if you see that little diagonal Secret Wars 2 Continues banner in the corner of an issue in uh, the mid-80s, then you know that probably some dude with a jerry curl is going to show up, derail the plot, and then disappear.
1: And finally, Empath had a really bad day and decided that the only thing that would make him feel better is trying to sell Sunspot and Magma into slavery to the Hellfire Club.
0: And Empath, to remind everyone, is one of the Hellions. Those are the sort of rival team of the New Mutants at the school run by Emma Frost.
1: Specifically, he's the worst Hellion. He's the one who manipulates emotions, and he's basically just a complete douchebag. So Legion wrapped up with New Mutants 28. We're going to jump in with New Mutants 29. And New Mutants 29, speaking of jumping in, opens with a panel of Sam Guthrie, Cannonball, and Liana Rasputin, Magic, barreling through an airport in swimsuits
0: by barreling through you of course mean blasting through. I do
1: mean blasting through, not invulnerably even. Yes,
0: that's blastin as uh distinct from blasting with a g. I mean, we've talked about different ways you can open an arc of X-Men or new mutants or whatever. Often you'll start in the danger room sort of showcasing all the characters and their powers and this just this just throws us right in there in more ways than one actually because in addition to not knowing why there are two people going through an airport in a way that would make the modern TSA terrified, we quickly find that Canon, or uh, rather Sunspot and Magma, have true to Empath's word been kidnapped off camera.
1: Well, and we get a hint of what's going to happen because the cover of this issue features Sunspot and a character whom we mentioned a number of episodes ago—the one and only Maximum Rocker. So Maximum Rocker, you may recall, is from the arena, and he's specifically from the arena that was introduced in the amazing, weird, brilliant, and mini miniseries Beauty and the Beast.
0: And actually, this arc of New Mutants was my first exposure to that miniseries. I I personally didn't read Beauty and the Beast until we did it for the show years and years and years later.
1: And then discovered what you had missed as a child? I,
0: yes, exactly. For me, it was just like, there's a horse guy. I don't know why there's a horse guy, but there he is. And similarly, I hadn't been reading Secret Wars 2, so there's a guy with the Jerry curl in a weird white suit, I don't know what's going on, comics sure are weird, maybe I'll understand when I'm older. And so, yeah, we learned that Empath, the arena that he sold Sunspot and Magma into, was the one from Beauty and the Beast, or at least how it ended up, because at the end of Beauty and the Beast, Max Rocker and Ivich, two of the gladiators, had sort of taken it over and resolved to have it be a good, ethical arena where people could beat the tower out of each other for good reasons and ethical reasons.
1: That's all kind of changed, but we're going to get there in a minute. First, Ileana and Sam try to follow where Roberto and Amara have been taken onto a plane, but Sam gets caught in the afterburn from the engines and falls. Turns off his blast field. Iliana grabs him, teleports into him limo, teleports someone from the airport with them. I
0: think it's the guy from the van that took uh, Sunspot and Magma to the plane. Oh
1: yeah, you're right. The driver.
0: A different kidnapper.
1: Yes, one of several. This is a team project. Exactly.
0: It's it's a group project, and like I wonder if it's like a school group project where it turns out the van driver did all the work and everyone else just sort of like rode along on his coattails. Oh
1: man, those jerks. Seriously. And they're all going to get the same grade. So he just had to work really hard anyway.
0: Oh man, the Hellfire Club is totally not fair. They should give individual grades. And specifically,
1: they kidnapped them when the New Mutants were. Hanging out at the swimming pool, which is why everyone's in their swimsuits, and why the characters are just in their swimsuits for like the first issue of this.
0: And that's even when, after having uh, the demon Sim interrogate the aforementioned van driver in Limbo, Sam and Liana teleport to L.A., which they get out of him is where their friends have been taken, and so they just teleport in the middle of L.A. still in their bathing suits.
1: Look, Liana Rasputin is many things, but subtle is really not one of them. I adore the extent to which Liana just gives no fucks.
0: Well, it's like, okay, if you spend seven years of your adolescence in a hell dimension and end up having to turn into sort of a demon to depose its ruler, I feel like you've kind of earned the giving of no fucks. Yeah,
1: and her priorities have shifted, I think understandably based on her background and, and also her current life. I imagine that superhero priorities kind of change in general.
0: But yeah, so they're in LA. The trail's kind of cold. So... Well, because
1: Ilyana teleports not only through space but through time, and she can control the space part, but she's only got limited control of the time part. So they actually land in LA a week after they left
0: right and they decide it's a little too risky to try teleporting through time again so they ask well who do we know in LA and Sam says I know who we know in LA Lila Cheney." oh yeah that is Sam's rock star girlfriend from New Mutants Annual number one who we are both in love with
1: she's so cool
0: And so they show up at Lila's place, and they meet a character that will go on to become very significant later on, and that is Guido Carosella.
1: Strong guy!
0: That is, in fact, his codename. He chooses it just to annoy people. Yeah,
1: it's the best codename. He's mostly known for being one of the main characters of the first Peter David X Factor series. He's fantastic. We love him
0: very much. But right now, he's just sort of there. He doesn't really have much of a personality. He's just sort of Lila's butler slash assistant. And he's got this great character design with those sort of straight-across sunglasses that apparently were all the rage in 1985, and he's just this sort of, like, hulking, improbable figure with a tiny bit of hair on the top of his head. Yeah,
1: he's just kind of an enormous lump of person.
0: So yeah, they show up, and they talk to Lila, and she, of course, decides that the real place to talk is across the universe in a Dyson sphere, which, again, New Mutants Annual number one, we saw that.
1: And she teleports everyone in the room, which accidentally includes one of her session backup singers, who just by amazing coincidence happens to be Alison Blair, the one and only Dazzler. And I wonder with this, whether Dazzler's inclusion in this story is a byproduct of the story, whether it was deliberate, or whether there was some kind of you have to work her in so the Beyonder can see her and fall in love with her for Secret Wars, two reasons.
0: I'd imagine it's a little a column A, a little a column B, because honestly, if you're going to revisit the setting of Beauty and the Beast, bringing along one of the characters makes a great deal of sense.
1: Oh, but why not the Heartbreak Hotel?
0: I would love to see the Heartbreak Hotel them again. So
1: much they get mentioned at least. They
0: do, they do. So Dazzler's there now. Lila doesn't know that Alison Blair is in fact the Dazzler. Has been kind of incognito since the events of Beauty and the Beast and of the unfortunate Dazzler of the movie. Well, it
1: takes her a whopping one panel to spill. So Lila is as usual adorable and super flirty at Sam. Sam is super embarrassed.
0: And Magic is just like, oh god, seriously?
1: They know, I think, that Roberto and Amara have been kidnapped by the Gladiators, and Lila's never heard of these guys, but Dazzler, of course, has. Dazzler used to be one of them.
0: They figure, okay, well, we need to infiltrate this whole thing, we need to get our friends back, and that's where we, the readers, see what's going on with those friends, with Roberto da Costa and Amara Aquila.
1: And it's like a reunion of all of the minor side characters you never thought you'd see again.
0: When we first covered New Mutants, I think it was the second episode we did about them, there was a character named Axe who was basically a sort of racist caricature of Mr. T, which, yes, let's think about that phrase.
1: Yeah, with an axe—
0: Right, which was somehow a mutant power. It was—we uh, didn't worry too much about it. I said that he didn't come back, and I think that was wishful thinking because here he is, and I believe he shows up again later in something involving Wolverine or a different arena or something.
1: He's one of those minor characters who just kind of pops up.
0: But at least he's less terrible this time. He's just sort of there That's because he's only to, in, like, two panels. That's probably for the best. Small doses, Axe. But you were saying—
1: The guy running the arena—and this makes absolutely no sense because he was thoroughly deposed at the end of Beauty and the Beast— is the one and only— Alexander Flynn. Now, as you may recall, Alexander Flynn is actually the son of Victor Von Doom, notable for having a really, really stupid world domination plan and what may be the worst hat in the Marvel Universe.
0: It is seriously terrible. But
1: Alexander Flynn is terrible. He's just appalling. He can mildly telepathically manipulate people. He is dumb as a box of rocks. He's kind of pretty looking. Victor Von Doom shows up at the end of Beauty and the Beast and gives him a really spectacular dressing down. And it's implied that he either slinks off or is killed at the end of that. And he's definitely not still running the arena. So I don't know what the hell is going on here.
0: So for now, Roberto and Amara, they're imprisoned. They're in this sort of schmancy gladiator armor. And they're, uh, Roberto is, you know, raging against the bars and the, the room and Alexander Flynn. And he rages a lot, yes. And so he and Amara are like, well, what do we do? Because Alexander Flynn has just said, by the way, if you guys don't fight for me, I'm going to kill some kids.
1: This bugs me, because we're going to find out later that he's bluffing. And they do not think to do things like ask for proof of life, which is like hostage negotiation 101. And look, I haven't actually seen Magnum P.I. I assume, given the title of the show and the nature of it, that this is something that Roberto would have picked up at some point, that you ask for proof of life.
0: Well, at least Amara's picked up something about Magnum P.I., because she asks as they're deciding what to do... Tell me, Sunspot, what would your hero Thomas Magnum do? Would he dare risk such a holocaust?
1: I can't tell if she's supposed to be being sarcastic or not at that point.
0: I don't know, but... Because you read
1: it super sincerely, and I read it kind of sarcastically. Like, tell me, Sunspot, what would your hero Thomas Magnum do? Would he risk such a holocaust? No,
0: Nyeh, nye, nye, nye. nye. <laughs>
1: Why don't you marry Thomas Magnum if you love him so much, Sunspot?
0: Suddenly I hate magma. <laughs> Anyway, so they decide, well, I guess we have to stick around and work our way through this so these kids don't die. At the same time, the rescue team is kind of assembling, and Dazzler's talking about how she really misses being in the arena. She must reluctantly admit that she does. There was a lot of camaraderie. The adulation of the crowd is something she really hasn't had since her career tanked after Dazzler of the movie. Also,
1: she got to hang out with Ivich and Maximum Rocker.
0: But Lila says, okay, if we need to get into this arena, I can get tickets through my record company.
1: What the hell record company does she record
0: with? A very... Very evil one, apparently. Well, no,
1: what she mentioned is she makes ridiculous amounts of money for them, so they'll go to absurd lengths to make her happy.
0: So they head over to the arena, and one thing I really enjoyed is that they see some graffiti while they're on the way. And Claremont does this. Sometimes he'll just have little asides about shit he likes. And so, yeah, there's graffiti for the band Nazgul. And I think we mentioned them a few episodes ago. They're Claremont's. from a George
1: R.R. R. Martin novel, right? They
0: are, yeah. They're a rock band from this book. Lila mentions that she used to actually uh be in Nazgul before well, all these no, she terrible opened things for happened. them. Oh, that was it, she yeah. She opened
1: for them. She went on tour with them.
0: They do get in, they sort of bluff their way in, and we now see that there is in fact a different person running the arena.
1: Right, and that is the master. You only see the master in, in silhouette. She is very cruel, she is very manipulative, and she recognizes the new mutants and she's really happy to have them there.
0: And we don't really know who this figure is, and in fact, the character's not actually referred to as the Master, that's just sort of what we started calling her. There's nothing Doctor Who or anything going on, though. So there's an arena match going on, and we see that Ivitch, who was one of Dazzler's friends uh, back in the Beauty and the Beast series, is about to get killed. So Dazzler totally blows her cover and goes in there in a spectacular display of dazzlement to uh, save her.
1: And then Max Rocker and Ace show up to face Sunspot and Magma. Sam is reminded by their ferocity of when he and Roberto were drugged and shoved in an arena in Nova Roma. And you know, for young teenagers, these kids have ended up in a really improbable number of gladiatorial arenas. They've ended
0: up in two, and that's definitely two more than I had ended up in by that point in my life.
1: Yeah, this is weird.
0: What's also weird is what happens next, which is, you remember that Secret Wars 2 derailment we were talking about?
1: Oh boy, do I ever.
0: Kabam! Here it is. So Magneto rips the roof off the arena and says, mutants, I have need of you. Xavier has told me that you have to help me out.
1: Speaking of things Magneto does a lot because he's all about ripping the roofs off things.
0: What's going on here is that Xavier who is you know not doing so hot after getting beaten to death he's asked Magneto to basically lead his team against the Beyonder because he knows the Beyonder's back on earth and he knows he's in really no condition to lead the X-Men or the New Mutants so Magneto says you know I'm a better dude these days I'm gonna do it.
1: Yeah, getting laid regularly has kind of done wonders for Magneto.
0: So, yeah, he picks up uh, the new mutants that he can, which are Sam and Magic. He also brings along Dazzler and Lila, but Sunspot and Magma, they don't want these kids to die, so they stay. These imaginary kids. Right, and Magneto just says, okay, bye, and there's no attempt for an explanation. Like, hey, Magneto, could you take four seconds and help us save these children? So they just stay there. The other characters go off to Secret Wars 2 number one, which we already covered and have some stuff happen.
1: I don't know if there was any lines or any books into which it was integrated more smoothly, but in this one, it always feels like a derailment when it pops up. It's so obviously something else that's just sort of bursting and grabbing bits of plot, bursting back out.
0: Yeah, and I mean, I am It's a, like a
1: narrative Kool-Aid man.
0: <laughs> I'll defend the next time Secret Wars 2 crosses over where the new mutants are killed and resurrected, but this right here is utterly unnecessary. No, you know
1: what? The thing is, that plot line could have been done without Secret Wars 2. I would challenge you to come up with one good thing Secret Wars 2 did that couldn't have been accomplished narratively otherwise.
0: What does come of it is that the Beyonder, sort of out of curiosity, pulls Ileana Rasputin's Dark Child persona forth. Now, this is sort of her... As this demon girl with horns and a tail and fangs and evil eyes. And the only time we've seen the Dark Child fully before was at the end of the Magic miniseries when she turns into that form and sort of sucks the demonness out of Belasco to defeat him.
1: Jesus, you make that sound so gross.
0: And we're going to see the Dark Child come back again and again, and she's going to be a real big deal as things go on.
1: Yeah, she is going to become extremely important. This is, I think, also the first time that we see Kitty use the soul sword.
0: Right, because the characters that go to Fight the Beyond are not the same characters that come back. We now have Kitty Pride and Rachel Summers with the other characters. So Kitty Pride pulls the sort of blackened soul sword away from the Dark Child to turn silver and she gets her own soul armor and she manages to break the sort of dark spell on Ilyana.
1: And that's gonna come up again and again, and actually even again after Ilyana is dead, that Kitty's the other person who can regularly wield Iliana's specifically soul sword, because they're totally girlfriends.
0: Subtextually.
1: That's how it works.
0: After this is sort of taken care of, they realize, wait, we were in the middle of a story when Jim Shooter pulled us out of it. Well, it- there's
1: something else that happens at Secret War Link too, which is that Beyonder gets his first glimpse of the woman who will later steal his heart.
0: Oh, yes. That being yeah. Dazzler. Yeah. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Ilyana reminds the team that they were in the middle of a story. And I left her line here. Two of her friends were kidnapped, remember? We were all set to rescue them when we got Shanghai to battle that dumb alien. And that's pretty much Secret Wars 2 in a nutshell.
1: Yeah, Miles' notes on the outline here just say, preach, motherfucker, in all caps.
0: So, yeah, they head back to the arena to re-infiltrate it. Kitty Pride poses as a techie who can help them.
1: I really love her disguise, just for the record.
0: Yeah, we'll post that in the As Mentioned. She's got a really good hat. And Dazzler just goes there as a combatant again, you know, basically fulfilling the same role she was in back well, in the day. Well, Dazzler
1: isn't supposed to. Like, they talk about this ahead of time, and Lila's like, yeah, no, you're addicted to that shit. You're not going back in. And Dazzler's like, okay. And then she's like, no, no, I have too much to prove. So she sneaks in as a combatant without talking to any of the rest of the team while Kitty is sneaking in as techie. And it's interesting, neither of those vocal characters is a new mutant.
0: Yeah, that's very true. Like, in the book Called New Mutants, our main characters right now are Dazzler and Shadowcat.
1: While they're doing this, the big bad, the shadowy person behind the arena, makes a phone call.
0: And that's to General Coy. Now, we've heard of General Coy before. That's Karma's terrible, terrible uncle.
1: That is our first clue as to who this person's going to turn out to be. Meanwhile, Dazzler fights her way through the arena. Roberto and Amara are furious with Dazzler for showing up and for, you know, being their rival. Rachel Summers is doing what she's going to do through most of Secret Wars and any other book she's in, which is obsessing over finding the Beyonder
0: also, okay, so speaking of Rachel Summers, can we talk about how awesomely smoothly she's dressed in this story?
1: Yes, yes we can.
0: Yeah, so she's got this sort of like a slacks and men's collared shirt and skinny tie combo that is rad as hell. Yes. I don't know if she's supposed to be coded as gay because like in the 80s that was sort of a lot of what you would do to code a woman as a lesbian in fiction but that never really is comes back or is addressed so I'd be curious as to whether that was a deliberate decision on Claremont or Sienkiewicz's part.
1: Yeah, I don't know because she's also got the super short hair from the beginning but I mean also in the first time we see her, it's in context of a romantic relationship with a man. Maybe queer-coded, but not necessarily gay. I do know that I definitely remember reading these and thinking that I totally wanted to dress like her when I grew up.
0: (laughs) And indeed you do. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, the characters all infiltrate in various ways. Kitty goes and tries to extricate Dazzler, but is immediately caught by the big bad, who promptly throws Kitty into a giant Sienkiewicz-esque robot to fight Sunspot and Magma in the arena.
1: So they figure out somehow that Kitty is inside the robot.
0: Well, the robot's using Kitty's powers, basically. Oh, that's true.
1: It's phasing periodically, which means that Kitty is somehow mind-controlled.
0: Indeed. There's not a fatality, which is what the big bad wants. And she's like, what are you waiting for? Kill him! And I love what Dazzler says here. You all heard our host, folks. We want blood. We want death. Kill, 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 kill.
1: Except I'm assuming she's saying it in her, like, bubblegum pop disco voice. You heard our host, folks! We want blood! We want death! Kill, 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 kill!
0: Now she just sounds like a terrifying cheerleader. I'm not so sure about I this. I don't know.
1: See, this is why I'm not a bubblegum pop star. I mean, this and everything else.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, true. So yeah, there's a uh, a big fight here, and as it goes on, we discover the identity of the big bad, which I'm sure is no surprise to any listeners who haven't read the story. Just through our description, this is Shankoi Man, one of the founding new mutants.
1: Or at least it appears to be.
0: Now, the difference is that she is immensely obese. I think she's described as being over 500 pounds, which was definitely not the case the first time we saw Karma.
1: So I think this is something we should talk about. And it's something that you noted in the outline, too. That's kind of uncomfortable. And the way it's handled really, really is. That coding of fatness as a corollary to villainy.
0: Yeah, it kind, it's of really reminded, weird. it kind of reminded me of the Baron Harkonnen from Dune.
1: I think the artist makes a huge difference, too, because with Sinkevich, one of the things that's immediately evident, the difference isn't just her size. Like, she looks really different. Her face is weird, and she gives less the sense of having gained a lot of weight than just being stretched and changed into something she's not. That's much less the case with Le Aloha.
0: Yeah, the second artist who will tackle the character, she just looks like a person who is that size, but...
1: And I feel like there are other ways to do that, and you never ever see it done in the other direction, which says enough.
0: And I mean, we'll get to more of the context of this this physical change in Karma, but yeah, the fatness as coded to villainy thing, like, I think fiction could stand to do a lot less of that. So anyway, Karma threatens to use her powers to uh, cause all of her servants to kill themselves, and so she does in fact get away... And the characters decide to go after her. Specifically, the New Mutants decide to go after her by themselves because they feel like she's their responsibility. They don't really trust Xavier since they feel like he should have been more on top of this, and they definitely don't trust this new guy, Magneto.
1: And Kitty, who's had sort of a mixed relationship with the New Mutants, offers to cover for them back at home.
0: And this is actually right here the end of Bill Sienkiewicz's work on the series. The characters all go off, and he gets this last final splash page of all of them sort of standing heroically, summoning gladiator armor.
1: And this is all eight of them now. The other New Mutants have joined them since.
0: Yeah, and four of them are the characters that are present, sort of some of whom are in gladiator armor, and the others are sort of this mist that's coming off of Liliana's soul sword, and it's just a last hurrah, last farewell from the iconic New Mutants artist.
1: And Sam is front and center still in his tiny red swim trunks.
0: Yes, he is. He and Tom Corsi can hang out. That's sort of one mini-arc, and there's another mini-arc, but I sort of think of them as the same big story because it's all about— karma as a villain and kind of what happens with her
1: they very very much are
0: so anyway the next artist that we mentioned a couple times is steve Lealoa, and he just does these three issues he just does the second half of the karma arc and i freaking love his work on new mutants
1: i have mixed feelings about him i feel like in a lot of ways on this he's kind of drawing a sinkavage light i like his other stuff that he's done a little bit better than this
0: I don't know, for me, like, he captures Sienkiewicz's sort of exaggerated style, not in the same way that Sienkiewicz does, mind you, and his his layouts aren't nearly as creative, but mainly I just love the way he draws characters like Warlock, and we'll talk more about that momentarily.
1: Yeah, he does some really fun stuff with Warlock, and I think his Warlock is cartoonier than Sienkiewicz's, which works very well for that character.
0: Yeah, I think it really does. So the New Mutants are um, heading over to the location that Doug has pinned Karma down to using his, like, techie research. And while this is going on, Bobby is remembering back to when Karma, they thought, died at the end of New Meets number 6, when um, the Silver Samurai and the Viper blew up the place that they were all fighting in. And he sort of still blames himself for this. He's been furious with himself ever since. You know, in his first appearance, his girlfriend gets killed and he can't save her, and then his teammate gets killed and he can't save her, seemingly— And so he's really angry at Xavier because, again, he really thinks that the Professor should have been more on top of this.
1: The Professor really should have been on top of this if it was what it appeared to be, which it's not.
0: Right. And we'll find out more about that later. So they're heading out. And, yeah, this right here is the first time that all eight characters have been on the same mission since they did New Mutants Annual Number 1. And, Rachel, I remember you were saying you just love the way the team bounces off each other because each of the pairings, like, is sort of its own working relationship. Well, I think
1: that was specifically in context when you were talking much, much later later of Ileana and Doug, there's no combination of these characters that don't have a really interesting dynamic. And I really like that. And I think that's a great hallmark of a really good team book.
0: And so they head to a little country called Madripoor.
1: And this is actually the first appearance of Madripoor in Marvel Comics, isn't it?
0: It is. Yeah, and it's going to be a big deal. It's basically like Terrible Crime Nation. I think it's supposed to be somewhere in Southeast Asia.
1: Yeah, it's basically run by various mobs and organized crime. I think Vipers run it for the longest time. Mystique bought it with cash at one point.
0: Yes, she did. And this is also where the uh, Wolverine series that's going to start a few years past our current coverage is going to initially take place entirely. Yeah,
1: when friends playing Noir Detective, he's usually playing Noir Detective in Madripoor.
0: Cypher actually compares the place to a cross between Maz Eisley and Tortuga.
1: That's because Cypher is the best. And again, the New Mutants are kind of the team with the pop culture touchstones.
0: Turns out Karma has bought a large portion of the country, so it's not hard for them to find her compound. They break in... And she possesses almost all of them, except for Danny and Illyana, who managed to teleport away using one of Illyana's stepping disks. Just
1: like when they were fighting the Hellions.
0: And so when they get back, they are running a little late because, you know, teleportation and time travel. And all of the people who were there in the compound are dead, clearly having been killed by the possessed new mutants. Oh, God. And then Danny and Magic quickly realize when the cops show up that they've been framed for it. So they're like, holy crap, let's get out of here. And then they
1: teleport way, way out of time, and they end up in ancient Cairo.
0: Yeah, they teleport way to the past, and they actually meet what looks initially to be Storm.
1: But turns out to be her inevitable lookalike distant ancestor, because everyone's got one of those.
0: Yes, this is shake. I'm not sure how you're supposed to say that, but I'm going to say that.
1: S H A K E
0: so they hang out there briefly and rest, and she mentions that she saw that they were having some trouble careening through the time stream, so she used her magic to pull them back. Damn. Which prompts Liana to remember that the storm she first met in Limbo was also a sorceress herself.
1: So she sends them back, but they end up much later in the future, and they encounter... Amazing evil punk future versions of their teammates.
0: Yes, I love the art on here. We'll definitely put that into the as-mentioned post, but everyone's all like angles and buckles and sneers, and Magma's got this wonderful hair that's made of fire.
1: Evil Wolf Spain totally has Elfquest sideburns.
0: It's great, and uh, also this is a dark future. We know it's dark because Sam at one point to address someone says, Yo, fool! It's like Oh, s- Sam. Sam, what Guthrie. would Ma
1: Guthrie say?
0: <laughs>
1: Either of them, really?
0: <laughs> yes. It's so wonderfully awkward um, and great. I
1: should explain. I think I've brought this up before, but for a long time, no one really kept track of Sam's family, and so every time they appeared in the comic, there would be a different number of siblings, and his mother would look different. There's a great breakdown of this, on I think, on uncannyxmen.net.
0: <laughs> I think it's kind of like how we live in a series of shifting alternate universes, depending on what company owns Dr. Pepper, whether it's Coke or Pepsi or they're independent, because every I time I check...
1: Company distributed them,
0: uh, maybe, but every time I check, it's different. So I'm pretty sure it's it's just dimensional shift, and it's the same thing with MAGA 3.
1: We end up in Earth without Jay.
0: Oh, what was that from again? It's from
1: the Nature of the Beasts from Heinlein.
0: Of course, it is. That's excellent. Speaking so, of
1: things that could probably stand to be explained at some point.
0: Oh, geez, someone else can do that podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, um, at this point, Danny is just feeling kind of angry with herself and just crushed and really out of her depth and responsible for going off half cocked on this mission that they weren't qualified for. And just as things are looking really dark, Aurora shows up, but this time it's the real Aurora Monroe. It's the real storm, fresh out of life-death too.
1: This is when they're back in modern times, right?
0: Yes, they managed to get back to modern Cairo roughly around the same time that all the present-day stuff is going on.
1: And weirdly, Aurora was dressed exactly like her ancestor? Like, exactly?
0: I'm just saying, if you gotta look, stick with it, even through the generations. No,
1: what the hell is up with that? That's really weird.
0: You know, white robes look good on Aurora, or Shake, or whoever. So
1: anyway, they ended a place called the Pharaoh Club, which is described as the most wicked place in all of Cairo. Remember the evil disco?
0: Oh, the evil disco from the first part of the Dark Phoenix saga? Yeah,
1: where we first saw Dazzler.
0: This is like the Egyptian equivalent, huh?
1: Yeah, but that was really like seedy and gross. And this is super posh and fancy because it's the center of karma's evil empire.
0: Yeah, and she's just being a total jerk. Like, she's using the Possessed New Mutants and possessing other people to, like, break up marriages and stuff.
1: And the patrons have sort of mixed reactions to this.
0: Yeah, in Claremont's narration, it talks about how, you know, some are entertained and some are disgusted and some hope they're next. Which is sort of a continual Claremont trope of, like, you know, the people in the crowd that just really want to be possessed body and soul or whatever. You know,
1: different strokes for different folks. That's
0: entirely fair, yeah.
1: This club is so terrible. You'd think word would kind of get around, but on the other hand, I guess I could see that making it kind of more of a tourist trap.
0: Oh, yeah, you know, it's like Jim and Paula from Minnesota, like, oh, I heard about this place, the Pharaoh Club. It got four Michelin stars. It's supposed to be real evil.
1: Oh, I don't don't know, dear. It says here that it's the most wicked place in all of Cairo. That sounds pretty wicked.
0: Well, anyway, uh, the point is, um, listeners, don't go to the Pharaoh Club. It's terrible, and you'll get possessed, and your marriage will be broken up.
1: Yeah, basically, and it's really petty, too, like— She's not doing, like, massively evil things. She's just, like, fucking with people's relationships. She's, like, the supervillain mean girl.
0: I think she kind of is, yeah. But anyway, so Storm, Magic, and Mirage show up to attempt to free their friends— and it becomes, again, very clear that they're kind of outmatched because Karma is a lot more powerful than she used to be. Her possession's really strong. She seems to have telepathy now all of a sudden. They do manage to break Wolfsbane out um, with the help of Warlock, who's disguised himself as a rug and then wraps himself around them and turns into a rocket ship.
1: Fear not, chief friend Denny Mirage! The cavalry has arrived to save your day, same as in the movies! whoopee behave.
0: Yeah, Warlock is just adorable all the time. Yes, and so yeah, Rain after this is really horrified. Like re- she can sort of remember some of the terrible things that Karma made her do. Warlock again, remaining adorable, turns into like a cartoon bunny and then a puppy to cheer her up and like licks her face.
1: Best friendly moisture from optical sensors. Self was nearly trying to clean it off.
0: And Danny says, "You did fine."
1: But leakage has increased.
0: Trust me, it's great it's heartwarming.
1: The new mutants. As a team, I think one of the things that I really like about them, one of the things that distinguishes them from the X-Men, at least of this era, it varies, is the extent to which they look after each other. Like they're really, really good friends and they really sort of take care of and comfort each other.
0: I think the X-Men are in a way family, and the new mutants kind of aren't, and in a way that makes them almost closer because it's more of a choice. They have these complex dynamics and they conflict with each other, but they also really care about each other. It's always interesting and it's always deliberate.
1: Well, and their relationships and dynamics are intense and immediate intense, I think, in a way that's, if not unique, then at least primary to teenagers to kids that age.
0: Yeah, I mean, I remember when when we were teenagers, like, that's what it was all about. You know, our friends were our tribe. They, they licked were, each other's
1: faces they, they were They crying. turned
0: into puppies and licked each other's faces. It was weird. We had really
1: amazing friends. You
0: know, back in South Florida, it was a strange world. It's super weird. So, anyway, they don't really have long to chill because the remaining possessed new mutants show up to attack them.
1: So, at this point, What appears to happen is magic betrays the rest of the team. Now, we know from Thought Balloons that she's got some kind of other plan going, but as far as Warlock, who's the only one not possessed, can tell, she's just sold them out.
0: Yeah, she, like, takes everyone to Karma and sort of gives them to her as gifts.
1: Except for Warlock, who she leaves in limbo with Sim, which is kind of maybe a mistake because Sim, while he is technically beholden to Ileana, he's technically supposed to obey her. He's kind of working to undercut her and what he does is basically take Warlock to the side and say, you know, she's not what she looks like. She killed the X-Men.
0: We see some of their corpses like Colossus uh, with his chest caved in embedded in a wall, which again was something we saw from the Magic miniseries.
1: Right, and she only, I think she only killed one or two of those X-Men. Most of them were killed by Belasco or Belasco's minions. I think actually Sim killed Colossus.
0: Uh, yeah, I believe he did. So Warlock is starting to get more and more freaked out, and when Eliana shows back up in limbo, having turned in the rest of the characters, Aurora included, he just yells traitor and turns into this giant war form and attacks.
1: And she responds by turning into a little girl in a dress and basically saying, look, you can trust me or not. If you don't trust me, go ahead and kill me. I'm not going to stop you. This is kind of a running motif.
0: It is. Yeah, it's definitely a, a Claremont trope. And Warlock can't bring himself to kill her, and so he melts, basically. He turns into, like, a shapeless puddle of Tekken's despair.
1: And this is, again, you know, has just super, super expressive Warlock who literally melts when he's distraught. And who, when he discovers that she has not actually betrayed him after all, that she's going to save the other new mutants and she needs his help is so euphoric that he breaks narrative conventions of comics.
0: Yeah, I love this one panel, and I mean, I don't think we can adequately describe this, so please check out the as-mentioned post that we're going to put up on the blog. But Warlock is sort of smiling and joyous on one side of Illyana, and then has like a tendril of himself extending to the other side of her as sort of another Warlock that's full of faces and smiles. Like, it's sort of motion and animation within a single panel because Warlock is completely amorphous.
1: It's a remarkably, remarkably effective trick.
0: So, anyway... The plan is enacted as Karma's continuing to do, like, evil mean girl stuff with her mind slaves in the Pharaoh Club. She sort of brings Storm out of the possession for long enough to tell her the evil plot.
1: It's very classical villain speech. You know, I'm going to unpossess you just for long enough to reveal my true nature and my true plans. And what we learn is that she's not Karma at all.
0: She is, in fact, the Shadow King, an X-Men villain we haven't seen for quite a few years. Uh, And in fact, we've only seen him in a flashback. Now, this has been uh, redone in the cartoon a couple times. It's been referenced in the comics a ton. So even if you haven't read this story... Uh, or the story it references, you've probably seen it somewhere.
1: Yeah, it's been done in, I think, most animated series. It's been done in at least two of them.
0: Yeah, and that is where Xavier, as a younger man, goes to Cairo, briefly meets a very young Aurora Monroe, who is a pickpocket.
1: And we actually see this because Magic and Warlock port back in time to see this happen. He senses this malevolent telepathic presence in a nearby cafe. And what it turns out is that it's Amal Farouk, who's the Shadow King's current host at that point. I think he's been his host since at least pre-World War Two.
0: Yeah, and they have like this psychic duel, which involves glowing figures in gladiatorial armor.
1: At least, you know, to the two of them. To everyone else, it looks like they both just sit there for a couple hours, and then <sighs> Farouk just drops dead.
0: It's basically like a staring contest from hell
1: magic and warlock are back in time watching this and warlock is basically disguised as gogo from final fantasy 6
0: i think you're kind of right yeah he's just sort of this robed figure that's clearly made of techno organic stuff and is not really subtle in the least and
1: after coming to this conclusion at breakfast this morning we tried to cross cast new mutants with final fantasy 6 and concluded that it just really doesn't work
0: you have a couple of vague parallels but it falls apart pretty quickly yeah,
1: it rain ends up gao and it's don't go there
0: rain fine shortcut So there's this sort of flashback that Ilyana and Warlock have traveled back in time to experience at the same time that Karma slash the Shadow King is revealing, you know, what's really going on. And it's not a very long story. Basically, after Xavier killed Amal Farouk, the Shadow King's essence floated around for a while and eventually found Karma, used her own powers to possess her, and that's pretty much it.
1: And he's doing all of this as revenge on Xavier, because why does everyone ever go after the X-Men and New Mutants?
0: And this is the other half of why Karma looks the way she does in this arc, which is that he's been basically just abusing her body and being completely hedonistic without any heed for the consequences because it's not his body, it's just the body he happens to be in, which is of an ally of someone he hates. Yeah. So I'm even surprised so, he hasn't
1: gotten, like, really obnoxious tattoos.
0: Just gets a dick tattooed on her forehead. I guess that would make her a little bit less effective as, like, a big evil leader.
1: Yeah, you could cover it up.
0: Dicks on the forehead and fancy hats. This is how-to supervillain. We'd be terrible supervillains. We
1: we'd be amazing supervillains. We'd talk people into doing shit like
0: that. <laughs> well, anyway... At this point, Ilyana comes back and says, I want to work with you. I know what's going on. I want to be your ally. The Shadow King slash Karma grabs her and starts sort of twisting her hand and saying, "Hi. I never really intended to ally with you, but now you're mine.
1: But she can't possess magic.
0: Right, and so she's trying to think of what the hell's going on. I mean, Magic has these psychic shields, certainly. At which point, Magic kind of melts into Warlock, who in fact was in an actually effective disguise, which she doesn't do very often.
1: Well, he can mimic specific appearances. It's just when he tries to be a generic person that he kind of falls apart.
0: And while this has been going on, while the Shadow King's been distracted, all of the new mutants have been subtly being teleported away to Limbo, which we've already seen is effective at breaking Karma's possession over a person there's a big fight and in the middle of it the shadow king abandons shan he abandons karma and i love the way this is shown because mirage is using her powers which focally are to bring out a person's biggest fear and make an image of it a very believable image for the shadow king that was xavier and all of a sudden this biggest fear that mirage is bringing out is a bunch of vietnam war stuff like helicopters and explosions and gunfire and
1: they realize that it must be that it's shan again
0: And the other visual signifier you can see of that is that when the Shadow King is in Karma... The character's eyebrows are always sort of angry and downturned, like down toward the center.
1: And even when he looks worried, they still look really sort of resolved and angular and sharp and fierce. And when it's Shan again, her face softens a lot.
0: Yeah, and those eyebrows are instead upturned, and she's, you know, freaking out, understandably, since she's been possessed by this malevolent astral force for who knows how long.
1: Yeah, and is coming back to a body she hardly recognizes.
0: The Shadow King sort of jumps from body to body, and they eventually realize he's in Doug. Karma says, alright, you know what? I need to take this guy down. This is my responsibility. I'm gonna fight him.
1: And she totally does, and it is awesome.
0: She fights him astrally. Now, of course, the Shadow King is an incredibly powerful telepath. He gave Xavier a run for his money. Initially, Shan is at a severe disadvantage. She's just turned into this amorphous, cartoony human figure completely unable to to fight back and the shadow king is like all i really did was let you do what you were going to do what you really wanted to do anyway all this that's been done to you is just you doing it to yourself bullshit karma's sort of despairing until the new mutants all show up as cartoon bees i'm just saying i would be very disappointed if in the upcoming secret wars event there is not one uh, part of battle world that is where the new mutants are cartoon bees dot tumblr dot com i guess do you
1: think that's an official earth and if Marvel, uh, if you ever do Waha uh-huh, again, we will be hoping to see that.
0: Yeah. And so Karma's body, this amorphous body, even more exaggerated than it is in Sienkiewicz's art in real life, is about to kill the Shadow King when he astrally flees.
1: Which is pretty much what the Shadow King does at the end of every fight ever, forever.
0: And so it comes back to the real world. And Shan's like, just, you know, he's out there. He can possess me again. Just leave me here. Let the flames consume me. Because the Shadow King was a load-bearing boss and the building is collapsing and on fire.
1: And they're like, oh, hell no. You're one of
0: us. Yeah. Yeah, and they encourage her to live, to not give him that victory because she's their friend and they're going to figure this whole thing out. And they escape. And Storm's like, you guys have been through a lot. I know this awesome island called Kyronos. Let's go there and relax and recover. And then we're going to get sucked into Asgard, but that's a story for a different day. You know, it's it's a weird mixed story. I mean, it's Sinkevich's last work, but it's not his strongest. And then there's a guest artist that does the rest of it uh, in what's a much more compelling arc. There's some weird body politics to it, but there's also a lot of great character work and a lot of great action. So personally, I really enjoy this arc.
1: At the same time, though, I feel like not that much happens. There's a lot of exposition. There's a lot of traveling back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and it feels really fetch questy.
0: It's kind of like an old Doctor Who episode, I guess, in that regard. There
1: aren't enough quarries for that.
0: Well, you know, you replace your quarries with Kairos.
1: No, I mean, to me, it feels like a sequential fetch quest where... As filler, there's just a lot of travel.
0: Still, among that travel, there's so much good character work. I mean, we really get good looks at especially, I think, Mirage and magic and, of course, Karma herself.
1: I disagree. I mean, I think it's a good arc, but I think compared to the three before it, the Demon Bear, Cloak and Dagger, Legion, which are just all so focused and so strong, this feels diffuse. It doesn't have, you know, that energy and it doesn't have that really, really distinct voice that those stories did.
0: I guess that's true, yeah, and we will see a little bit of that going forward as well as the series struggles to find a regular artist. It'll eventually settle on a guy named Jackson Guise, uh, who sticks around for a long time. But yeah, it feels a little aimless before then, I think.
1: Meanwhile, you've got
0: questions. Indeed you do.
1: Okay, so Orion asks on Tumblr, The X-Men seem to keep defaulting back to some combination of Cyclops, Jean, Storm, Wolverine, and a young girl mutant, Kitty, Jubilee, Rogue, etc. What is it about this combination that people keep falling back on? Do these characters work particularly well together, or are they just individually more popular, or does it merely correspond to a time of particular popularity like the mid-90s?
0: I think part of it is, yeah, is that mid-90s thing, or early 90s as the case may be, because a ton of people came into the X-Men franchise with the cartoon, which had a lineup of that and a number of other characters and of course you know the characters those characters themselves are all very very popular cyclops jean storm wolverine and then you know pick your young girl whether it's kitty jubilee or certain variations of rogue but part of it i think is that everyone in that lineup has a very distinct role in terms of personality and power the all-business leader his more human and sympathetic partner the powerful outsider the violent rebel and the audience surrogate who's the younger character And that kind of lets the characters bounce off each other in interesting ways and provides a lot of hooks for different types of stories and also different types of inter-team conflicts. I don't think you have to have those specific roles filled. Like it's not a it's not a tank DPS heals kind of thing. But I do think that if you're gonna do an effective team and especially an effective X team where character and character interaction are so important, you kinda of have to have different archetypes that are sufficiently distinct from one another that you're gonna see that sort of that sort of textured, nuanced interaction.
1: I think to an extent, especially with adaptations cross-media, there's sort of a feel of if it's not broke, don't fix it.
0: So Andrew asks on our blog. What are Cypher's actual powers? He's good at language, but sometimes that means learning or speaking new languages. Sometimes it means he's a persuasive speaker. Once it even made him a computer programmer, a good computer programmer, what can he actually do, and can his character be redeemed?
1: Okay, so Cypher is a superlinguist, and originally what that meant is basically uncanny facility with languages. So he could pick up pretty much any language translate it within minutes or hours of first encountering it. Now, Cypher died in New Mutants number 60, and when he was brought back during the Necrosha arc, his powers were really amped up, which they still are now. And at this point, he basically seems to interpret pretty much all sensory input as language. So superficially, what this has done is made him more effective in combat because he can read and respond to body language, which is kind of a cheap ploy and I feel like is mostly a byproduct of people having trouble coming up with interesting stories around characters who aren't combat focused. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to complain about that for a moment. What's more interesting to me is the other result of that writing, which is that the way his powers work now has been written as a pretty direct analog to sensory integration dysfunction which has honestly been a lot more narratively interesting than now cypher can kick ass right totally we've also got some thanks um we mentioned patreon tiers entitle you to thanks and a variety of silly voices i think i'm going to turn it over to the two intrepid folks who specifically requested sexy voices
0: from miles indeed oh jesse i'm grateful and i wish we could touch but after what happened with cody i'm as scared as a sinner in a cyclone to do so nonsense dear rogue As Bob Cairns and I, Dracula, can tell you, there are so many ways to connect to a person. Mind to mind, blood to blood.
1: I love that you did Sexy Dracula.
0: Sexy Dracula is the only Dracula.
1: I've got a couple angry narrators this time, too, so... Was it a cruel twist of fate that brought you to this place, Michael Ross? Or your own poor choices? Either way, only one thing is certain. Soon George Banjos will possess you, body and
0: soul. And with that, we are out of time.
1: Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon. We are produced by Bobby Roberts, who is also the producer of the Geek Remix trilogy of pop culture mashup albums and co-host of the Star Wars podcast full of Sith.
0: New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at our website, rachelandmiles.com. Check
1: out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to the podcast, essays, fan art, and now recaps and reviews of every episode of X-Men Evolution.
0: And this podcast, and everything we do X-Men-wise, is totally listener-supported. It's made possible by our Patreon supporters. You guys are rad. If you'd like to become a supporter, check out the link at the top of our website.
1: Next week, we're going to be back with the X-Men as they meet up once again with Alpha Flight, everyone's favorite range of bizarre Canadian stereotypes.
0: As the trickster god, Loki offers to fix all of their problems, which totally works out for everyone with no twists whatsoever. See you then!